Well, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we've been in this little mini-series for February called Renew. What we're trying to do is look at how God is using this season in the life of our church, we believe, um, to not just renew our home, but also to renew us, uh, to renew our sense of community, to renew our commitment to discipleship, uh, to renew our mission, and, and even, as we'll look at today, to renew our generosity. Uh, that are, that's what I've been amazed at this, these last few weeks, is just to see how God is using this project to pour out this joyful spirit of generosity. And so... We're going to look today at what probably is one of the most famous passages in the Bible about generosity, and certainly one of the most uh, lengthy and substantial, and that's from 2 Corinthians 8. It's such a long passage, I'm only going to read selections. So if you'll turn in your Bibles there, um, or your bulletin, I've got some scripture printed there on page 8. So let's go to God's Word together. Paul is writing to his friends in Corinth, and this is what he says, chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And then chapter 9, starting at verse 6, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it's written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us. Your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This, brothers and sisters, is the word of the Lord. So I need to make an honest confession to you all about my journey a little bit on this campaign. Six months ago, as we were getting ready to gear up for this campaign, and I knew that I was called to help lead it, I was not in a good place. Uh, I was very anxious, I was very worried, I was stressed, Uh, I was not sleeping well, I was really fretting. And um, it wasn't, it really wasn't about the project itself because we've we've been talking about doing this for 15 years. (laughs) So it wasn't about the project, it was about the money. I was dreading talking about money 
I was dreading getting up and asking for money, sitting down with people and inviting them to give. And I was filled with fear. And you know, some of this has to just do with my personality. Um, I've always been uncomfortable talking about money and finances, um, even, <laughs> even with my wife. Um, and this, I'm not alone in this. I know that a lot of people, a lot of us are. In fact, these days it seems like people are more willing to talk about sex and politics and religion than they are to talk about their own finances with other people. And so there was that. But also the fact that I, I know that a lot of people have baggage when it comes to ministers, pastors talking about money for good reason. <laughs> and so I was also carrying a lot of that baggage and I just cared too much about what people think of me. And so that's where I was. I was really not in a good place. To be honest with you, this is probably the biggest mountain that I have faced in my career, uh, and I didn't know how I was gonna do it. But I gotta tell you what's happened. God has completely changed me. Uh, He has used this campaign to completely transform me in the way that I think about money and about giving and about generosity. Why has this happened? Frankly, because of all the joy that I have witnessed. I have gotten a front row seat to a big old boatload of joy. I have seen the joy that people have in thinking about a common and new future together, a third. I've witnessed the joy that people have when they give their money away for God's work and his kingdom. I've witnessed the joy that comes as unity and community builds, as we come around a common purpose. Sarah and I have experienced joy as we've been kicked in the pants a little bit to increase our own commitment to generosity. Y'all, this has been probably the biggest transformation I've had in the shortest period of time. And I feel a little embarrassed even talking about this because for 15 years, I've been basically talking to you about money, but I just think I recently got converted. I'm sorry to tell you that, but this, this is what's happened to me. And so I've now found myself in a place that I never thought I would be, that I am actually joyful and excited about giving and about asking other people to give because I have stumbled into God's joy. So this kind of transformation from like worry to, worry to, to, to excitement and, and fretfulness to joy is what Paul wants to see happen as he writes in this text. He's writing to his friends in Corinth, and, uh, and, and frankly, they're just, they're just, they've just uh, waned a little bit in their giving and their generosity. They've waned a little bit in their joy. And so he's trying to stimulate, he's trying to stir up their generosity again. And, and how does he do it? Does he do it by, by cranking the, the guilt on them or pouring out the shame or making them feel bad or get angry? No. How does he stimulate them to generosity? By inviting them into joy. By inviting them to say, come on, y'all. This is amazing. I want to invite you in. He tells them about the Macedonians, these poor group of Christians in another part of the ancient world who he said, though they're impoverished, they welled up in generosity because of verse two, the overflowing joy. They're given and they had a blast. Don't you want to be a part of that? 
He says, he says in, uh, chap- in chapter eight, verse seven, God loves a cheerful giver. The word he uses there for cheerful is the Greek word hilaron, which is the root of our English word hilarious. So he's saying, y'all, God loves a hilarious giver. This is hilarious. This is amazing. This is a party. This is astounding. Come on in and join the fun. Come and taste the joy. He's inviting them into joy to be changed. How does that change happen? I mean, seriously, how does that happen? How do you, when it comes to your money, how do you move from where I have been most of my life from anxiety and worry and stress? How do you get changed to a person of joy and excitement only through the gospel of Jesus? This is why in this long, the, the longest two chapters we have about money in the Bible, right in the center of it is one of the most profound and succinct summaries of the gospel that you will encounter in the entire Bible. Chapter eight, verse nine, Paul says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. If you're not a Christian today, or if you're exploring what it means to be a Christian, you could do no worse than to study this text. Look what he says. He says, Christ was rich. He was a part of the Trinity. You know, he was a, uh, in the throne of God with the Trinity, the Father and the Spirit, uh, immune from all pain and sickness and suffering and death, sharing the wealth of the Trinity with the praise of the angels. And that rich Christ became poor. He willingly, voluntarily, radically divested himself of his eternal wealth and made himself poor, literally becoming an impoverished man, but spiritually becoming poor by taking upon himself the depravity of the human experience, our pain, our suffering, and ultimately our own sin and condemnation on the cross. The rich Christ became poor. Why? For your sakes. You who were spiritually poor, who were cut off from God, who were trapped in sin, condemned to hell, Cut off from eternity. You were poor, spiritually poor, and yet the rich Christ became poor so that you in your poverty might share in Christ's riches. Jesus took everything that is yours, all of your poverty, sin, and sorrow, and death, and he gave back to you by grace his riches, his eternal inheritance as the Son of God, his status as the firstborn to the Father, his membership in the family of God, his inheritance of the kingdom. Jesus said, all of that is for you. It's free. I'll take your sin. You take my riches. The rich Christ became poor so that poor sinners might become rich. Do you believe that gospel, friends? Do you believe that? Well, guess what? This is where it gets hard. Paul says, here's the test. If you want to know if you really believe this gospel, look at your money. Look at what you do with your money. Look at your bank accounts. Look at your checkbook. Look, look, look at your giving. Look at your generosity. He, he's saying here clearly that what happens when someone really begins to have the gospel sink deep into their life is it changes them, not just spiritually, but economically. They begin to behave differently and because of the joy of the gospel, it begins to usher forth into new habits of giving and generosity. That's what I've tasted in this campaign. And that's what God wants for all of us. He wants that kind of dramatic change that the gospel can bring.
How does the gospel do that? Let's just look at a few ways the gospel changes us when it comes to our money and generosity. The first is, is that the gospel changes the content of our giving. The gospel changes the content of our giving. What do we give when we give, class? What do we give? What do we give? Well, money. We give money. Well, not according to Paul. Paul, it's funny. This is a very, very long text, two chapters about giving. And notice, Paul never uses the word money once. That's deliberate. For him, money is secondary. What's primary is the heart. He says in verse 5, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. See, the money is secondary. What we're actually giving is ourselves, our hearts to the Lord and to each other. This is truly reminiscent of what is probably the most famous, most celebrated financial gift in the whole Bible. Do you, do you remember what it is? Class? The widow's might. Thanks. I know that all of you were thinking that. Um, so, okay. It's in Luke 21. I love this story. Jesus is chilling in the temple, doing some people watching. And he's, you could just imagine him sort of sitting over there in the corner with his arms crossed, just watching everybody in the collection day. And all these rich guys are coming up and they're throwing some serious bank into the collection plate, right? And then this little widow comes up and she comes up with her cane and she takes these two little mites, these two little copper coins that were pretty much worthless in the ancient world. And she drops that in and Jesus just says, hey, 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 we're gonna gotta say something here now to the crowd. He stops everyone and he says, I am telling you now, friends, this woman has put in more than all the others. Now, if you're standing there in the temple, you're like, say what, Jesus? What, what kind of math are you using there? I mean, this woman just dropped in a couple of quarters and these guys are putting in these fat rolls of cash. I'm not getting your equations here. How, how, how is she giving more than anyone else? Well, it's of course because Jesus was using a different metric. He's using a different measurement. Jesus knows what we often forget is that we don't own anything. God owns everything. Everything we have belongs to him. We are just stewards. We've been entrusted with his wealth, the master's wealth, for a very short period of time that we might use it for his purposes. And we never give God back anything that he does not yet already possess. But there is one thing of ours that God does not possess that he wants from us. And what is it? Our hearts our love, our fidelity, our loyalty. That's the metric Jesus is using. That's what he's measuring. And so he is literally saying, this old woman is literally giving more than anyone else here because he can see the heart. He sees that she is giving more heart. That's, that's what he measures. Friends, it's, it's, it's amazing. Paul is so hands-off about these giving instructions. Did you notice he says, I'm not commanding you. I don't want you to do this under compulsion. I only want you to do this if you want to. Can you imagine him saying that about some other area of ethics in the Christian life? Can you imagine him saying, you know, you shouldn't probably commit adultery, so don't, if you don't want to, you know, right? You would never hear him saying that with like sexual standards. Why? Because in the Bible, sexual standards are, are very clear. There's a clear external referent. Not so much when it comes to giving. Why? Because there's no clear external reference. There's no way of knowing, actually, from an external basis, whether someone is being generous or whether they're greedy. You can't, you know, it could be that someone who is giving $100 
is giving a radically generous gift of the heart while someone who is giving $100,000 is actually doing so to mask a deeper greed. It, there's no external standard because it's all about the heart because all we can give to God is the heart. And so how do you know if you're really giving of yourself? How do you know if you're really giving your heart? Well, at the risk of oversimplifying, when you're giving is fueled by joy. When you're not giving out of compulsion or anxiety or fear, but you just find yourself so moved and so deeply grateful. If you find yourself asking, what is the minimum I have to give to appease God and appease my pastor to get him to shut up? You know, how much do I have to give? If that's what you're thinking, you probably have some spiritual heart work to do. But if you find yourself saying, how much can I give? How, 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 how can I give joyfully, sacrificially, even in a way that makes a measurable difference of my lifestyle? If you find yourself doing that, it's a good sign that your heart's being changed by grace. Someone shared with me this lovely story of, um, you know, in late January when we announced the campaign, um, she was standing in her kitchen with her husband talking about the campaign. And they were sort of talking about it with, they were saying, oh gosh, a campaign. How much are we going to give? And the little girl was in the kitchen. And she overheard it. And uh, she went up to her room. While they're still talking, she comes back down, interrupts her mom and dad, hands them an envelope of cash. Mom says, what's this? She goes, my Christmas money. I want to give it to the campaign. And of course, her heart was broken. <laughs> to see a little one uh, give so joyfully, so spontaneously. Y'all, that is the largest gift. That girl's gift is the largest gift we have received in this campaign. Using the metric of Jesus, of course. It's the biggest one. Because it changes, the gospel changes the content of our giving. We give our hearts. What else does it change? Well, the gospel changes the context of our giving. And here's what I mean by that. Most giving in America these days is very private. You know, it's a very private individual affair. Some degree of confidentiality and privacy is, of course, appropriate. But what's interesting is that Paul is so communal in his understanding of giving. He sees this as a corporate, communal activity. He says, calls giving service to the Lord's people. He says uh, they're giving tests the sincerity of their love. He talks about love being kindled in you for each other. His, their giving connects them with their fellow Christians. Paul sees that their giving will create and deepen community. To giving, Christian giving, is an act of community building. It's, it, it, it's relationship making. Henry Nouwen, in his great book, The Spirituality of Fundraising, says that all Christian giving is an invitation to relationship. It's an invitation to get out of your individual silo, to be a part of something that is bigger than your own self, that sometimes even extends beyond your own little life, and to be a part of something beautiful, it being invited into a community of belonging, that we're now part of this mission of Jesus together. My friend Kevin Ford told me the story, I think I've shared this with you before, um, that when he was a boy, what he really, 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 really wanted was a treehouse. And so he asked for a treehouse all the way up to Christmas Day, and he runs down on Christmas morning. Of course, there's no treehouse in the living room. 
And so he's a little disappointed, but in the late, in the late in the morning, his dad says, Kevin, take a look outside. So Kevin runs outside, looks up in the tree, looks down at the driveway, and there sitting in the driveway is a pile of lumber. <laughs> and his dad comes up behind him and puts his hands on his shoulders, and he said, we're going to build this together, son. That's my gift to you. And, and, and Kevin, you know, he says as much as his heart was broken initially, it ended up being like the greatest gift that his father ever gave him because it deeply cemented their relationship. And that's what giving in community does. It reminds us that we're not isolated individuals. We belong to God. We belong to each other. Jesus has opened the door through his grace, through his hospitality, and created a new oikos, a new family. And when we give collectively, it connects us with each other. As we build something together, it deeply intensifies our joy. The gospel, that's what I mean when I say the gospel changes the context of our giving. It reminds you that you're not giving as an isolated individual. It's not an act of individual deliberation, but it is an act of joyful communal love. And that's what God's inviting us into, to be formed by his grace and called into a common mission together. I've had so many beautiful conversations with people over these last six weeks let me tell you about one. I had a young, a young couple reach out to me. I had never met them before. They're fairly new to the church. Um, they're only in their late 20s, no kids yet. Uh, they haven't even joined the church yet. But they reached out and they said, we'd like to meet with you because we'd really like to make as big a gift as we can to this Renew campaign. And I was so surprised. I, I literally said, why? <laughs> I, <laughs> um, and... Uh, and this is what they said. They said, um, you know, we've been kind of on the margins, and we see this as God's invitation to us to really finally make this our community. And we're so excited about it. Like, we want to have kids here. We want to have them baptized here. We want to see them raised here. We want to see them walk down the aisle here when they get married. We want this to be our community. God's using this to invite us in. And we want to make a spiritual investment, not just in our biological family, but in our spiritual family for years to come. God's calling us in. And that was beautiful. And that's what God, I see God doing over and over again, just like this loom that we've seen, that as we've woven our prayer, so God is doing that as he weaves us in to each other. It changes the context of our giving from individual to communal. And then finally, one last thing. The gospel changes the content of our giving, the context of our giving, and finally it changes the catalyst or the cause for our giving. I'm really talking about motivation here, but I needed a C word uh, for, my, for my alliteration. Um, y'all bear with me on that, right? Y'all been with me long enough to know that's what I, I live for that stuff, right? The gospel changes the, the catalyst, the cause of our giving. Why do people give? All sorts of reasons. Give to assuage guilt. Um, give to boost your self-esteem. Remember the old Jerry Lewis telephones, you know, send me $100 now and you can look in the mirror and know that you are a good person. Um, is that why we give? To, to, to boost our self-esteem? Um, do we give to get a tax reduction? Um, basically, we all give to get something. Nobody gives unless they are expecting to gain something. And you know what? That's okay. God has made us desire-driven creatures. We all want something, right? And so it's okay to give to get, but here's the change that the gospel makes. The gospel changes what you want to get. 
Christians are still self-interested givers, but the spirit changes what the self is interested in. That's what the gospel changes. It changes the cause, the catalyst, the motivation for your giving. That's exactly what Paul's saying in chapter 9, verse 6. He says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. You know, when farmers uh, have a bunch of seed and they, and, they, and they sow it, they're not thinking of it as lost. You know, oh, shoot, I just threw away all that seed into the soil, said no farmer ever right? That's not what farmers do. In a way, farmers are giving their seed into the earth. Why? In order to gain back something much more valuable, a harvest. And that's what Paul says right here. He's saying, give to get. Give to get a harvest. Give for your own benefit. Give to get a lasting harvest. And the more you sow, the more you'll get in return. He will supply and increase the store of your seed, verse 10. Many commentators think that Paul has in mind here that famous passage from Malachi chapter 3. Do you, have any of you heard that one? It goes like this. Um, um, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, he tells his people. Put me to the test, God says. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not room enough to store it. I love this. God is daring his people. He said, come on, I dare you. I double dog dare you. I triple dog dare you. Do this, do this. If you give, if you give abundantly, sacrificially, joyfully, if you give, I promise you, put me to the test. I'm gonna pour out so many blessings in your life that you will not be able to contain them. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that if we give, God is gonna give back the money and more of it than we gave away? Well, I don't know. Maybe God can do anything that he wants. But this is not a typical prosperity gospel message. Do you understand what I'm saying? We do not preach a prosperity gospel here. Um, have you heard the joke about the, the prosperity gospel preacher? Sorry, tangent joke. So the, the prosperity gospel, the televangelist is on the TV and he says, if you give, if you send in $20 right now, God will triple your money. And so the guy calls him up and says, well, if you give me $20, God will triple your money. How about that? Uh, get it? <laughs> so, so, look, here's, here's, what the, here's what the televangelists don't get. Okay, here is the great fallacy, heresy, really, of the televangelist prosperity gospel preachers. What they don't get is this. God may actually increase your wealth as you give. But here's the thing. It's not to pad your nest. It's not to bling out your car. It's not to get a personal jet. The reason he may increase your wealth is why? To increase your generosity. Paul says it right here in verse 11. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Do you know about John Wesley? John Wesley decided early on when he was a young man that as he grew in success, that he would always grow in his generosity. So his first year of ministry, when he was just a young man, he made 30 pounds that year. He kept 28 of it for his living expenses. He gave two pounds away. By the end of his career, he was making 1,400 pounds. Guess what? He used 28 for his living expenses. He gave the rest away. As God increased his wealth, he did not increase his standard of living. He increased his standard of giving. That's the principle that Paul is preaching here. He will increase the store of your righteousness so that you can be generous on every occasion. Here's the point. God says, I promise you, I dare you, put me to the test. As you give I'm gonna pour out so many blessings in your life. It could be financial blessings. 
More likely, it's spiritual blessings, the ones that Val and Fritz were talking about in that video. Freedom from bondage of accumulation. Oh my goodness, we all need that, don't we? Uh, Deepened love for each other. Increased thanksgiving, awareness of God's provision. Liberation from fear and anxiety. That's been a big one for me. It isn't until I have basically pushed myself to be more generous that I have realized, oh my goodness, God is my abundant provider. I didn't give this to me. God gave this to me. And I've seen how faithful he is in his provisions, deeper faith in his provision. God wants to give all of these gifts, love, thanksgiving, freedom, faith, and perhaps the greatest one of all, the joy in knowing that you can actually, you know that saying, you can't take it with you? Well, guess what? You can. You can actually use your money right now in such a way to invest in kingdom investments where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves will not break and steal. That's God's promise to you. And what we're doing, friends, is we're giving to things, not just budgets and HVAC systems and pretty hallways. We are giving to lasting kingdom investments, transform lives. We're giving to see the gospel preached, disciples made, community formed, relationships healed, missionaries sent, lives changed. The more you sow, the greater the harvest. Heidi Little, one of our covenant partners, when she was just out of college, um, the recession was just beginning to wane, and so the only job she could really get was as a salesperson for Procter & Gamble. She hated the job. She was miserable, not because she has anything against Procter & Gamble, but because she believes her calling in life is not to sell toothpaste. So, She just pushed through this year, Um, but she was able actually to save a little bit of money because a family in her church allowed her to live with them. And so by the end of the year, she had set aside a little bit of money out of each paycheck, and Procter & Gamble allowed her to put that money into the purchase of some Procter & Gamble stock when she left. Okay, so it's a little stock investment. So she's kept that for 27 years, and that stock has multiplied. It's made some bank. 15 times over, it has multiplied. And last week when Heidi told me that she was giving all that money to the Renew campaign, this is what she said. I wrote it down because it was so moving. She said, I am just overflowing with joy. Knowing the way that God redeemed that miserable experience selling toothpaste, I am joyful about seeing the way God has multiplied that small investment and I am amazed that he is now giving me the opportunity to leverage the investment of that money for a whole nother generation of young people to learn about Jesus at third like he did for me. Y'all, you can't make up that kind of stuff. This is the, the, only this kind of joy can be found in the kingdom. You know, throughout this month, we've been talking a lot about sacrificial giving. We've said the words We're not asking for equal giving, but equal sacrifice. Well, friends, sacrifice probably isn't the best word because sacrifice implies something negative, right? Like you're giving up something that you want, but actually Christian sacrifice means that you're willing to give something of value to gain something of greater value. The farmer gives the seed to gain a more valuable harvest. A parent gives valuable time and money to their children to gain something of greater value, the maturity and flourishing of their children. We heard from Hannah and Alex Sawyer last week who are giving up a kitchen renovation to give that money to the campaign 
not because they don't want a new kitchen, but because they actually more desire to see what God will do in and through that money. And Heidi is giving a valuable stock to gain the joy of reinvesting that money to see her own children and a new generation grow up in the faith in Jesus. We give to gain. As Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So the gospel changes why we give. It's a new catalyst, you know, changing why we, we still give to get, but now, gosh, we're giving to get joy. We're giving to get freedom. We're giving to get happiness. We're giving to get lasting investment in the kingdom. That's what God's inviting us into. He's inviting us into joy. So let me sum up. The gospel is the good news that the rich Christ became poor so that poor sinners can become rich. That's the gospel. And Paul says that the more this gospel sinks into your soul, the more it begins to change you, not just spiritually, but economically. It changes us. It changes the content of our giving so that we're no longer just giving money transactionally. We're giving our souls, our lives, our loves. It changes the context of our giving, that we're no longer isolated individuals, but we're part of a new communal household, deepening our connection with each other. And it changes the catalyst or the cause for our giving. We're still giving to get, but now we're getting the transformative blessings of God's lasting kingdom. God says, come on, I dare you. I dare you. You're gonna get the joy. I'm gonna pour out so many blessings, but I cannot pour them into a clenched fist. Open your hands. Open your hands. It will pour out joy in your life. Robert Murray McShane, the great famous Scottish preacher, once said this, my dear Christian, Give much, give freely, give often. Christ is glorious and happy, and so shall you be, as our Lord says to us. It's not your money I want, it's your happiness. Come and taste my joy. Friends, it's not about the money, it's about the joy. Would you come and, and taste it? Let's pray. We do thank you, Lord Jesus that though you were rich, you became poor so that we poor sinners might become rich. We're just so grateful. And we do pray that in this season that you would stir up in us the kind of joyful generosity that only the gospel can bring. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.